Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Another busy, busy show getting to you. Lots to talk about weather-wise. We're still talking about what's happening at YVR as well as what is in store as far as more snow, more freezing rain. We'll have a live update at 1.30 this afternoon. We are starting, though, once again with what is happening at Vancouver's International Airport, where many, many passengers are still stranded. So I was sleeping here last night and I need to sleep one more day here to be able to go to my destination. Just one of many, many passengers still uh, waiting and wondering what is happening next. Well, joining us now is Gabor Lukach, founder of airpassengerrights.ca. Gabor, thank you so much. I know you've been very busy answering a lot of questions about this as well, but thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. What are your what is your advice or what are your thoughts when you hear about not only passengers stranded at the airport, delayed flights, canceled flights, but also the number of passengers who were stuck sitting on airplanes for 9, 10, 11, 12 hours? Um, for passengers who were stuck on the aircraft, that would warrant some serious attention. Under the law, passengers have a right to disembark after three hours uh, in general and up to three hours and 45 minutes there. I can keep you on the, on the tarmac if the departure is imminent. After that, they absolutely have an obligation to let you disembark. So at the four-hour mark, I would recommend passengers to call 911 because they are at that point being forcibly confined to an aircraft. And while uh, it may not be simple to extract passengers, they have the right to regain their liberty. It's a matter of fundamental uh, right to have your own liberty. We heard today from the CEO of the Vancouver International Airport, and we're going to hear uh, some more from that interview a bit later on on this show. Uh, But she talked about the fact that they did, in some cases, take staircases to the planes where planes couldn't get to the gates and did get people out of those planes. But because it was snowing so heavily, it was difficult to do that. And it was a very slow process because of the snow and to make sure it was safe. Uh, Is it is there any kind of leeway there if the airport can prove that it did try and get passengers off those planes? Well, first of all, it's not the airport's fault here. I would like to be clear that I, I'm see, hearing a lot of, of uh, finger pointing to the Vancouver airport, but nothing that I have to say has anything to do with the airport. This is the airline's responsibility. It is their flight. It was already a mistake and a lack of judgment to board passengers for a departure if they don't have a clear plan for disembarking the same passengers if the departure has to be aborted. Uh, the airport, I'm sure, has done its very best. Uh, however, it is their own responsibility. It, if it means stairs, let it be stairs. It means difficult. Yes, it is difficult. In a snowstorm, life is difficult. So what? These passengers have a right to be off the plane. And uh, as those examples with the stairs show, it just, it's a matter of effort, making the effort to actually get those passengers off. And uh, Based on what I'm hearing from the airport, it was not lack of uh, willingness to help by the airport. It was more the airline that was perhaps slow to resort to this type of help. Uh, I can, you know, if it has been four and a half hours, maybe five hours, it's a lot. It's way beyond what is reasonable. But, you know, this kind of security safety explanations, maybe one would kind of be inclined to let it go. But 12 hours, that's completely outside of anything that is acceptable or reasonable. That is simply a disregard of passengers' 
mental and physical health and the passenger's rights. Right. And I, you're, you're right. And I can't even imagine what it might. Well, I mean, we talked to some people who were stuck on those planes and they did talk about the fact that people were, were panicking. The mood had changed and people were really not, as you can imagine, not in a good state being on a plane that long. When you talk about that, though, so should it have been the airlines? Because, again, we're also hearing that this was uh, an act of nature. It was something. Yes, there was snow in the forecast, but we ended up getting a lot more snow in a shorter period of time. I mean, to, to put it to, to the airlines to have known that, would they not then have had to not fly from where they flew to know that when you get to YVR, you're not going, there's not going to be a gate for you? That's indeed a serious concern. So um, and on the one hand, of course, you would like to transport as many passengers as possible. And if it's still possible to fly the airline, should they fly? But if it is not possible to disembark passengers, for whatever reasons, then obviously they should be canceling that flight or at least delaying that flight on the depart- other city's end until they have a reasonable prospect of being able to disembark this, those passengers. In terms of compensation, though, you have to understand that that, that uh, the passengers' basic rights in this situation is a refund if they choose to no longer travel in the original form of payment and uh, alternate transportation. Now, with, in terms of alternate transportation, the airline is required to rebook the passengers. And for large carriers like WestJet in Air Canada they, and Swoop as well, that requirement also includes the obligation to rebook the passengers on flights of competitors and any other airline if, if the original airline cannot transport a passenger within 48 hours. So, for example, if WestJet, and it's a problem that I've heard a lot about WestJet, is unable to rebook passengers within 48 hours of the original departure time, but there are seats available in Air Canada or on Flair or on Swoop, or in any other airline, they are required by law to rebook passengers on those other flights, and their failure to do so means the passenger can go out and buy a ticket on their own and make WestJet pay for it. It also means that WestJet breaks the law, and it, under the laws, should be also paying a hefty fine for breaching the law. Uh, what is your advice then, Gabor, to customers, flyers, that maybe they're not pleased with how they've been treated with the compensation or with the, with the plan? I mean, some people are being offered flights that leave after when they were already planning to be back. So if somebody's in a scenario where they are looking for compensation or they're not satisfied, what should they do? Let's be clear. We're talking about refunds, not compensation. Compensation is for deficient performance. Refund is getting back services that you don't receive or are unable to receive. Uh, you have no obligation to take a flight that comes back later than your departure time. You just opt a full refund. Also, if there are earlier flights on other airlines, I would buy those tickets uh, and uh, then make the original airline pay for it. They don't have an obligation to compensate you as, you know, for the inconvenience because we understand that weather is outside airlines control, but the airline does have an absolutely crystal clear obligation to rebook you on flights uh, that will get you to your destination. And if there are earlier flights on other airlines, then they have to buy you a ticket on those other flights. All right, uh, Gabor, I know, again, uh, very busy time for you and uh, talking about this. So thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. 
And a reminder, in about one hour from now, we are going to be hearing from the Transportation Minister and others about the incoming weather, that being more snow in the forecast as well, potential freezing rain, very, very icy conditions on many of the roads in the province. So we are going to bring you that news conference when it gets underway, scheduled at this point for 1.30 this afternoon. Right now, though, we are taking a look at one of the commitments that Premier David Eby has made. Not having happening right away, but saying that in the future, his government will phase out group homes when it comes to children that are in foster care and instead use specialized homes to transition away from the current model. Again, not going to happen overnight, but that is on the horizon. Well, Adam Olson is joining us now, the BC Green MLA for Saanich and the Islands. Adam, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for inviting me to the show. Uh, what are your thoughts on this idea? And again, it's, it seems like more of a long-term plan, a long-term promise, but the idea of phasing out group homes. Well, first of all, I, I think that it's important to frame this uh, in the reality that this has already has been a long-term project. Uh, you know, going back to 2018, uh, then um, a representative uh, Bernard Richard uh, tabled a uh, I sent a letter to the uh, MTFD minister at the time, Katrine Conroy, now our, our finance minister, uh, raising uh, some very, very deep concerns uh, with uh, the impacts that group homes are having with children. The, the fact that some of the staff uh, had not uh, passed the base, basic criminal record checks. Um, and, you know, th- this has been a story that has been uh, evolving and have been an issue that has been evolving since, uh, since before 2018. In fact, um, uh, uh, Richard sent a letter uh, previously to that asking to work with the government for about 18 months in advance of that letter in, in 2018. So this, uh, while the uh, Jennifer Charlesworth uh, talks about how this is going to be a, a decade-long project and uh, Minister Eby uh, frames this in a, in, a, in a project that's going to take some time, I think it's important to acknowledge that we have seen children languishing in group homes uh, for the better part of a decade, and um, this government has failed to act. So I think that whatever time frame they had given themselves in order to solve this problem, they should probably expedite that. And when we look at some of the issues and some of the absolutely heartbreaking stories and talking about children, teens who have died in group homes, and, and when we look at the recommendations made from coroner's inquests, what do you take from that as far as, uh, because there is also some some um, some arguments made that, that in some cases that they, that they do work, but when we see these cases, what does that say about the state of group homes, or at least some of them in B.C.? Uh, well, I think um, uh, the state of group homes in British Columbia is, is uh, I think, not, not a very good one. Um, we saw a, a young man whose body wasn't found for a, a number of days in, in a in a um, in a closet found in a closet of a group home uh, found in a closet in the group home uh, had been missing for a few days and and was was located there. We saw situation where group homes had to be closed and and uh, a, a young individual um, then put in a motel and and uh, living in a motel so the, the reality of this is is uh, the urgency with which uh, the former representative uh, Bernard Richard uh, brought to this government has not uh, been matched uh, by this government it was not matched by the former minister of 
uh, MCFD, Katrine Conroy. Again, she's now our finance minister. It has not been, uh, the response has not been, uh, uh, the urgency has not been met uh, by the current Minister of Children and Family Development, Nancy Dean. Uh, and again, we have a situation where the, the government has said it's going to take some time in order to do this. I, I don't know um, why it requires more time. This government has been had this in front of them since at least 2018. Uh, it's been pretty clear that the, a provincial government, a BC Liberal government before them, had it in front of them. And so, you know, I think that uh, while it might work for some kids, I think what we're finding and what we're seeing is that um, the system is uh, marred with problems and uh, the BC uh, NDP government needs to do something about it. And what would be a better model, do you think, then? And, and again, the children's minister, the minister in charge saying that there has been a, a shift or there has been a decrease in the number of children in care uh, mm-hmm. because of better supports with families and communities. But what do you think would be a better option or, or even a solution to, to cases where children, for whatever reason, are not with their immediate families? Well, I think that's exactly it. Uh, Any success that has been found has been uh, from a financial perspective and more importantly, I think, from a a care for the child uh, perspective has been found uh, in in working with children to stay in their homes uh, with their families as much as possible, uh, working with children to uh, stay, you know, to to find places within the extended family. Uh, These are both uh, more fiscally... um, efficient uh, solutions, but also we know that uh, children who are with a family member uh, and and have family members have much better outcomes. So while there is going to be absolutely uh, situations where uh, cases are more complex and uh, families are are simply not able to uh, accommodate, there's there's nobody able to to, uh, look after the the child within the uh, immediate or extended family, then uh, we're going to have to f- find, uh, you know, foster and adoption services, and and uh, perhaps a, a group environment only as a, a total last resort. Um, what I think we need to see is a government that takes this situation seriously. Um, and uh, you know, every indication that we've had is that that's not been the case. And so, you know, my hope is with uh, new uh, Premier David Eby and and his comments uh, on this. Uh, the group of advisors that he has around him, uh, that uh, he can find a, a way to uh, to use, you know, part, part of the um, $5 billion surplus that uh, he's going to be looking to spend over the next number of months uh, to ensure that uh, the, the former MCFD minister and the current finance minister, uh, Katrine Conroy, uh, actually puts the funds in place to begin that transition that we started uh, in this past fall session with uh, the passing of uh, some really, really substantive child welfare reforms uh, in the province, uh, starting to work towards a pathway for Indigenous nations uh, to take control of their own uh, child welfare um, needs. And uh, what's going to have to come with that is the appropriate amount of funding, because, of course, uh, it, it's not a service that can be done or delivered for free, and Indigenous nations don't necessarily have uh, access to revenue streams to be able to fund this. So uh, really the success is going to be found and, and really the I think the, um, the sense that we're going to get from this year's budget and this year's throne speech is just, um, you know, the, the level of importance and the level of priority that uh, this provincial government, particularly David, uh, Premier David Eby, uh, sees for, uh, for fixing this issue.
All right. We'll leave it there for today. Adam Olson, thank you so much for your time and for being able to come on the show today to talk more about this. Yeah, I appreciate uh, you highlighting uh, this important story. And I think that uh, it's certainly an issue that we'll be looking to in 2023. And I hope for the sake of those children and their families that uh, we're able to ensure them the the best care that that we can as a province. All right. I'm sure uh, we will talk about this more in 2023. Adam, thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Have a wonderful day. Well, the Vancouver Fire Rescue Services put out a tweet earlier today saying that within the last week, two vehicles have driven over their fire scene and on top of hoses, something that is incredibly dangerous for firefighters and for people who are in need of being rescued. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Matt Trudeau is the Captain of Public Information at Vancouver Fire Rescue Services. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me today, Jill. Well, having this happen twice in such a short period of time, I suppose having it happen at all is is not good. What are the dangers when somebody goes and drives over one of the hoses? Absolutely. We've, we've had an uh, increase lately of people entering into the fire scene. So anytime a vehicle's entering in there, we're, um, we do our best to block off streets, cone off hoses. But when we have a vehicle enter in, it's really deceptive for a cruise of potentially facing an impact from a car or being hung up in a hose where we've had a previous firefighter injured as a result of that. But in, with that, there's the risk of the car ending up on top of it or parked or stopped, obstructing the water flow and pressure. And because of the hot exhaust on it too, will melt and burn through the hose, uh, disrupting our, our lifeline, our water supply. So it's incredibly dangerous for our crews. And are there scenarios then where this has happened and crews have stopped the person or, or, or called out to them to explain what they're doing? And, and is it that they just didn't realize that even all of what was going on, they didn't realize that they shouldn't be driving there? Yeah, our crews have made, I mean, we do make significant efforts again to make sure we're blocking these off. Oftentimes, connecting to a hydrant or going, we, we are across multiple lanes for fighting a fire. And our crews have stopped the people so they don't continue on and, and definitely engage with them of showing, um, you know, the impact and educating these people on it. And uh, we're still seeing it. We saw the effects this summer of a couple of occurrences where it ruptured the hose and we have 120, 130 PSI of pressure being released. And even having that right now, you can imagine with the cold temperatures, we're going to freeze the area very quickly. Uh, and I, I know we were even talking earlier about exactly that when water gets on the roads and freezes and makes them even more treacherous. I would imagine though right now for your crews, when you're stomped and, and fighting fires, the road, many of the roads, especially the side streets, residential streets, they are ice rinks. They're completely ice and snow on top of that in some cases. That's got to be dangerous anyway without given without somebody driving onto the scene. Absolutely. I've driven around on the, some of the side streets and our crews are navigating them as best as they can. We, you'll, we'll see that all of our trucks basically we've got chains on them to navigate the, the ice that's on the side streets right now. And um, further than that, the crews who are fighting the fire inside are heavily relying on that water supply that must be established in order to extinguish the fire inside of the the numerous house fires and 
in content as far as we've had lately. And it, it, it's immediately dangerous when that supply line is, is compromised. Well, hopefully people will get the message and we won't have to put this out there as a reminder again. Uh, Matthew, while I have you on the line, though, as you mentioned, the house fires that your crews have been attending, we're now being told there is more snow, there's freezing rain potentially on the way, potential power outages. Are you concerned at all that there will be more fires or that this is kind of a, a recipe where we could see more house fires? Absolutely. Whenever we have significant changes within the weather, uh, the freezing, the thawing, extreme heat, extreme cold, it, it does create an increased volume uh, for the fire crews. Right now, because of the colder temperatures, we're seeing a lot of people understandably staying warm with by various means. We're just asking people to stay diligent and stay as safe as possible by using um, approved heaters and keep them away from combustibles, have working smoke alarms. And the the risk now too is we're going to see with the temperatures increasing, we're going to see all the pipes starting to unthaw and we're going to see a lot of water problems driving up alarm calls, uh, flooding. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely uh, challenges for our crews. All right. A good reminder as we prepare for another blast of this weather. Matthew Trudeau, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me today.